Welcome to The Loop with Stan Guthrie. As an author and communicator, Stan offers a critical and often humorous look at the day's issues, all from a distinctly Christian perspective. From his home studio in Chicagoland, where it snows far too often for his tastes, Stan cheerfully takes on all comers in a culture that is losing its mind without losing his. And now, here is Stan Guthrie. I'm here with my good friend, Doug LeBlanc. He worked with me at Christianity Today in the early 2000s. We were both associate editors of sorts. We both edited the CT Review, which covered books, films, and other cultural artifacts. And I thought it would be great for this podcast to reconnect with Doug so we could discuss uh, current and interesting books and whatever else is on our minds. Doug has a great radio voice and a lot of uh, insights on the culture, the church, and he's just a real fun and interesting guy. So welcome, Doug. Appreciate you uh, spending a little bit of your day with us. Thank you, Stan. I'm always happy to visit with you. We're going to start our inaugural segment together on the podcast with a book that you suggested. It's called Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machine Divides America and How to Fight Back. It's by Chris Steierwalt. I know of Chris uh, when I had cable, (laughs) probably two or three years ago or whenever it was. And he was one of the rational people on Fox News. He was uh, anchoring their decision desk uh, in 2020 when Fox called the election in Arizona, not for Trump, as uh, a lot of conservatives expected, but for Biden. And that caused a lot of consternation among Trump supporters, and eventually Steyerwalt, I think, was given his walking papers. You know, he's a fun guy from West Virginia. He's concerned about the craziness in the media and our responses to it. I guess my first question to you, Doug, is why did you suggest this book? What interested you in this book? Well, I have a real fondness for Chris Steyerwalt, primarily because of a podcast he does uh, called Ink Stained Wretches. (laughs) I love it. He does that with uh, Ileana Johnson, who edits the Washington Free Beacon. And they they both live and work in Washington, D.C. Chris uh, spends much of his time at the American Enterprise Institute, and I think they end up recording many of their episodes there because AEI has the kind of studio that makes it easy to record a good a good podcast. Uh, and on that uh, on that podcast he brings a great deal of humor uh, much of it self-effacing. Uh, he loves West Virginia and speaks of it very fondly which I also find pretty endearing and uh you don't, you don't he, hear of many major media figures from West Virginia, do you? No, I guess, I guess you really don't. Uh, although uh, Joe Manchin has certainly made it um, <laughs> um, yes. something we pay more attention to than, than we may have in, in previous years. And actually in this book, Chris mentions a giant of radio in West Virginia named Hoppy 
Kercheval. I'm not. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his last name. I guess I, you know, I respect his judgment enough that precisely because he recommended Hoppy, I looked him up on <laughs> on the web and found him. And uh, he's well respected, kind of fellow who's been around forever in their media scene. And so he's uh, like the rock foundation of quality at the radio station where he works. I thought it was kind of interesting hearing his background and how he got into journalism. The fact that he's not all pedigreed up, you know, with uh, all kinds Mm. of advanced degrees. He kind of just worked his way up from the bottom and kind of almost fell into it. I was kind of wondering as I was reading that, what kind of affinity you have for him. Because you got your start in Louisiana, right? You had pretty humble journalism beginnings as well. Yeah, I would say so. The one thing I did that he recommends against, at least nowadays, is that I majored in journalism. <laughs> I think I was treating college almost like a, a trade school um, experience. That was a big mistake, although I ultimately minored in, um, in history. I took a lot of history courses, took a lot of courses in uh, political science as well. It took me about a decade to finish my humble uh, bachelor's degree, including two years of simply working at the daily paper as a typist in the newsroom. Which one was that? Oh, that was what was called then the morning advocate. It is now simply the advocate. It was one of these classic cases where the same company owned both a morning paper and an afternoon paper. The afternoon paper was called the State Times. I left in 1999, and it was, I think, only a few years later that the company merged uh, the two papers, and so The Advocate became its sole paper. But since then, it has been bought out by another company, by, I mean, excuse me, by another local businessman out of New Orleans, and he has beefed it up where The Advocate has a presence in most of the major cities of Louisiana now. It's essentially become a, a statewide paper more than it ever was before. In a sense, I worked my way up to, I think I, I didn't go quite as high up the scale as Chris. When I left The Advocate, I was a full-time copy editor and mm-hmm. I was doing the religion section in the free time I had to do that. We were, we were a paper where the, the executive editor was an atheist. So, <laughs> you know, being uh, the religion editor at that paper was no great achievement in a sense. You but, got the short straw. Oh no, I volunteered for it, and and once <laughs> you know, good. once I started doing religion writing, I found that really was my favorite form of of journalism, and I've it, it pretty much determined the path I took for the rest of my career in that respect. Yeah, so you went to Christianity Today for those years, and then now what are you doing? Now I'm an associate editor with the Living Church. We're a monthly magazine that covers the Episcopal Church, but also the greater Anglican Communion. So that is keeping us busy because, as many of your listeners may have known from following the news, the Church of England's General Synod has voted to provide liturgies for blessing same-sex couples, but they're going to stop short of calling these rites weddings. I will be eager to see how they thread that needle. I, I, I don't think that most of the couples who um, take up these offers will necessarily 
see them as anything other than a form of marriage. What did Jesus say about it? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. Mm. I also majored in journalism, and that was basically because I discovered a number of fields that I was terrible at in college. Mm. And mm. I, I was a good writer and editor, and I had some newspapering background in high school and even before then. So I guess I, I would have to call myself an ink-stained wretch as well. My first job was at uh, Boca Raton News in Florida. You know, they've since folded, and it was, a, it was an interesting experience, and I was both grateful for the opportunity and glad to leave. Let's just put it that way. CT was sort of my return to journalism, and I appreciated my time there, but I've sort of branched out since then. But I, I've always uh, maintained an interest in the news, and I was interested to hear about what Chris Steyerwalt said about it after he kind of got roughed up and uh, I feel like he was mistreated and I always enjoyed him both as a journalist who tried to present the facts fairly but also in, as you say, a humorous way. So let's get down to this book. What do you think about his main thesis and why don't you describe that for us? Well, he spells out in his early chapters how the major news media have become silos of political ideology and of political bias. And I think in large part that has been in response to the existence of the web, and it's made it easier for publications to find a niche audience and to just beat it, kind of beat it into the ground and to assume that you know, they can know from this niche audience what the audience wants and give the audience uh, heaping uh, servings of it. I think the Washington Post would be something of an example of that, that during President Trump's uh, tenure, uh, was, it was about the same time that the Washington Post adopted the slogan, Democracy Dies in Darkness. And, you know, of course, as a, as a journalist, I'm perfectly happy for a newspaper to see itself as the guardian of democracy and the opponent of darkness and um, obfuscation and that sort of thing. But I think more often the way that manifested itself in the Post was kind of a knee-jerk contempt for, not only for Trump, but for, but for everybody who even voted for Trump. And that got pretty tiresome. It's tiresome to this day, as far as I'm concerned. And I used to adore the Post during the days when Ben Bradley was its executive editor. It's it's become kind of a brittle ideological sheet at times. Steyerwalt would apply the same critique to other major daily papers, but also to television news and magazines. Just about every publication and platform these days, it seems, is biased in one way or another. There are a few services that try to try to deal with that by clearly labeling stories and where they're coming from and how those publications would fall on the spectrum. There's one out of Canada called Ground News. It's a paid service and it, it seems to be doing, well, it's, it's certainly better than simply reading through Google News or reading through even a Flipboard or anything like that. Like those, it, it's kind of scraping the web for its content, but it does apply at least some evaluation to that content and puts it in 
perspective somewhat. So Starwalt explains how, or documents, you know, how bias is such a problem, not only for the media, but for us as consumers, if we fall into the pattern of only reading those sources that reinforce what we believe, rather than seeing anything from another perspective, which would help us to at least challenge our own bias, and at times perhaps to change the way we think about something. I don't think Starwalt used this phrase, but he said it's something akin to feeding our lizard brain over and over. And, <laughs> yes. you know, getting our biases, really honing them and, and expanding them. The natural biases that we have, I forget what he called it. I think it was a categorical error of, mm. you know, of when someone does something that's inconvenient to you, the natural human tendency is to say, well, that's what those people do. You know, whatever, yes. whoever those people are, you know, if it's a school teacher or if it's a, a MAGA hat wearing person or something, media feeds that because that's where the money is. And so yes. it gets yeah. worse and worse and the, and the middle gets smaller and smaller. He does use that language of that's what those people do. And it's, yeah. a, it's a very helpful critique. And not only because it's a, an example of uh, what I think Dennis Prager has sometimes pointed out, that for some ideologues, if you disagree with them, you're not only wrong, uh, you're evil. Right. And no matter which side of the political spectrum you're on or what point of the political spectrum you're on, that can be a temptation to dismiss people as evil. I think more often we'll simply dismiss people as stupid or intellectually <laughs> lazy, but even that, you know, there there is an element of contempt to that. I have to watch out for that and to check myself when I find myself doing it. You know, I think that when he says that, I, one of the problems that I have with, with his analysis is that I so strongly feel about some of these issues that I think, how could these people possibly be intellectually honest about that? I mean, issues like male and female, for example. I don't know what right. to do with that. He doesn't deny that there's bias there, but he says it's often a result of, I don't know, cocooning and hanging out with the people that you know and people who have similar educations and, and that kind of thing. And it's, it's not always conscious what they're doing. It's we tend to reflect the crowds that we're in, you know, whether it's the Washington circle or, you know, if you're out on the farm. And I don't know if I 100% follow him on that, but I, I do think that there's a clear reality that that is the case. He said that two-thirds of America's 3,143 counties don't have a daily newspaper anymore. And so the newspapers are really concentrated in urban areas, and so that tends to skew the coverage. And things like wanting to have diversity hiring tend to even make them become more progressive in their tendencies. You know, without them even trying, that's sort of the natural benefit. things. I remember talking to the editor of the newspaper I worked at, and we actually had a, I would say, a, a little bit of a dispute about our abortion coverage because I was disputing it. <laughs> because they were using the terminology pro-choice for people who were for legal abortion, but they were not using pro-life for people who wanted to protect the unborn. They were saying anti-abortion. I called a foul on that one. And as I talked one-on-one -on -one with my editor, who 
by the way, was the father of the girl that I took to the prom. So it was kind of of interesting. He admitted, you know, I was like, why is it that the coverage is like this? You know, I was sort of a naive young Christian. I was not yet really a conservative, at least settled in my beliefs. I was kind of leaning that way as a new Christian. He said, well, it's just the fact that the more liberal-leaning person tends to go into journalism because they want to change the world. I think that still holds true. Unfortunately, you know, there's not enough alternative viewpoints that want to change the world in another way. It it tends to go mostly in one direction. Yeah. I think that might be because uh, that seems to be the way the zeitgeist goes, that it's always moving leftward, it seems, and... At least my experience of progressives in the Episcopal Church and even in secular politics is that it's a never-ending project. So that if you win on gay marriage, I could picture people thinking, okay, what's next? And what do we start working on next? And I don't think they get together in small, smoky rooms and um, vote on it and decide what the project will be. Sometimes it just (laughs) seems to naturally emerge. Although there, you know, recently the New York Times did a story that actually suggested that the right wing chose the trans movement as its next target once gay marriage was no longer in play, when the right clearly saw that it had, in a sense, been defeated by the Supreme Court and by pop culture and uh, mass media. Yeah, I think a lot of progressives and people of the left do get their uh, ideas from the New York Times. I don't think it's a uh, conspiracy of any kind, but I do think it is sort of an opinion leader. Steyerwalt said something that 78% of journalists, or maybe it's political journalists, and think tanks are very left of center, you know, because of the geography of where they work, their cultural isolation, and ignorance of other viewpoints. I think that's probably true. I'd like to just touch on something that Steyerwalt said that I thought was interesting. Mainly it was something that he noted, and it was the August 8th, 2016 New York Times front page piece by Jim Rutenberg, where they said, we're going to have to dispense with classical, you know, impartial journalism, and we're going to have to go for truth in reporting on Trump and what that meant was they were not going to use the same standards on reporting on him because they thought he was such a danger to democracy. You know, that sort of fired everybody up on all sides so that, you know, I think it was obviously a mistake. I'm not a Trump person myself. I think it made Trump supporters very distrustful of the media. No wonder Trump would say that the press is an enemy of the people. He doesn't need much reason to hate the press and to say outlandish things, and this gave him just the ammunition he needed, and I think he's still using it. What's troubling to me about anyone who advocates abandoning objectivity or at least an aspirational fairness is that it usually expands well beyond the question of Donald Trump. It gets into climate change, about which there, I think, can be legitimate disagreements about what is it we can do as a culture, or especially as individuals, how much can we really make much of a difference about this as long as China and India are going <laughs> churning out the coal know, plants, yeah. Right. 
of course, abortion, same-sex marriage, uh, trans, uh, all the pelvic issues, as uh, <laughs> Matthew Fox liked to call them at one okay. time. We also go to the question of homeschooling your children, whether there should be uh, school choice or any kind of state support for private schools or, or giving parents vouchers so they could choose where to send their children. And even it falls out into riots, you know, uh, whereas, uh, you know, the left spent a lot of time burning buildings down and killing some people during Trump's years, but none of that seemed to register. Or you would have CNN anchors uh, actually saying, well, it's been a mostly peaceful protest <laughs> while you see a building burning in the background. Yeah. And, it reminds and, me of that Leslie Nielsen meme from, uh, <laughs> I think it's Naked Gun, where he's got his hands up and the type says, uh, nothing to see here. And, and you just see all the buildings behind him on fire. <laughs> yes. What we're seeing is, I think what you're trying to say is, you know, increasing movement. Once you kind of give up that aspirational fairness, everything is fair game for quote unquote truth, whatever the mm -hmm. press says is true. I think that's what I was trying to say earlier is, you know, it's hard for me to give them the benefit of the doubt, the mainstream press, because they seem to be advancing on so many fronts. I wonder how are we going to kind of bring this back? Because as Steyerwalt makes so clear, it is really bad for our republic to not have a press that fairly calls balls and strikes. Right. And one of the things he recommends is putting some money into at least one publication at a national level. You mean as readers? Yeah, yeah. That you, know, that you should subscribe to some publication that you respect. I believe that he subscribes, if I remember correctly, to the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And that's terrific. I mean, I, I'm glad that he can afford to do that. Uh, <laughs> some of those are pretty doggone expensive. I have tried to move toward this in my approach to how I'm consuming news online. I spoke about ground news because I became a customer. I eventually wearied of ground news in the sense that whenever there was abortion coverage, the art that was illustrating it was invariably uh, pro-abortion rights in its flavor, even if the news article was about a victory for pro-life forces mm -hmm. at the court level. He also had some suggestions for members of the press to try to address this problem. And one that stuck out to me was just defining things accurately. Steyerwalt says that just calling something conservative or liberal, you know, the classic categories, is no longer enough. You know, you've got conservatives, you've got Trumpists who are kind of nationalists, you've got not just liberals, but you've got uh, progressives who are, you know, willing to upend American institutions and I think it was a good challenge to the press to actually accurately label these things so that we can mm -hmm. really understand where they're coming from and what they're doing. Because the word conservative has, frankly, been so corrupted since Trump came along. It's hard to even identify as a member of the conservative movement now because so much of it has been co-opted by his craziness. Yes, indeed. And I would take it perhaps further than Chris and, and say that reporters probably ought to second-guess themselves 
anytime they're using an adjective, especially the if the adjective has ultra as part of it. Oh, yeah, it, like the yeah, ultra yeah. MAGA Republicans? Right, right. Or ultra right wing or, mm-hmm. or, or ultra left wing for that matter. I think so often it, it's better if you simply describe what the person is doing or saying and let the actions speak for themselves where you know, the label you apply as a journalist is probably the least important thing in the report. The, the matter is, have you got enough direct quotations or observations of behavioral pattern that establishes something? Otherwise, you're just kind of shouting into the air and labeling people in ways that aren't going to be helpful. Well, given, uh, or, or illumination, or illuminating, I mean. Well, given the bubble that he says so many journalists are in, I mean, mm-hmm. how's that going to happen? How are we going to break through the bubble? I mean, do we need to have affirmative action and have you know a certain percentage <laughs> of conservatives hired at newspapers or media outlets? Because the imbalance is really quite striking. Right. I guess the thing I'm more supportive of, at the moment at least, is supporting these alternatives in which, well, I guess what really comes to mind in that respect would be Substack. It's become like the default platform for people who were working in mainstream media but found that it was so woke and so precious about so many things that they couldn't work there with a clear conscience. My favorite example of that would be Barry Weiss. She's a lesbian, a Jewish lesbian, and she found it too suffocating. And she has founded a substack called The Free Press, and she publishes amazing things that often are sympathetic to, to Christians and Christian concerns. She recently had a project by a woman who grew up in the Fred Phelps church, the God Hates Fags yeah. outfit, mm-hmm. and has since left it. And she had this woman do interviews with J.K. Rowling about (laughs) the harassment she has faced simply for saying that biological women are women and that biological men can't just become women through surgery or through a hormonal um, treatment. Treatment, yes. Another example would be Matt Taibbi, who was at Rolling Stone. He was sort of the uh, Hunter Thompson of his generation. Kind of a crank, uh, as far as I was concerned, when he was with Rolling Stone. I don't know what changed Matt Taibbi's thinking, but he's been pretty critical of media outlets censoring people on the COVID matter, and he was best known for being one of the reporters who who was receiving documents from Elon Musk about the enormities of Twitter and just how prone it was to suffocating uh, free speech among its customers. He publishes a thing called Racket News. I don't think that Matt has a particular gift for naming his publications, but <laughs> that's what it's known as. Um, and Andrew Sullivan is also on Substack. I think he is yeah. earning more than he, he had ever earned before. He left New York Magazine to go to Substack. Andrew is an openly gay, Catholic young man, but also one who is happy to engage with social conservatives and to interview them. And he has um, skeptical uh, themes about the trans movement. And I don't think he would be entirely hostile to it, but he would be 
skeptical about its most ambitious kind of statements and assumptions. So what is the takeaway from this book? What's next? We all know that the media is broken. The title of the book is Broken News, but how do we fix it? I think certainly from Chris's perspective, it's learning how to read the news uh, skeptically and not just accepting whatever a reporter tells you. And I would reiterate his recommendation to support worthy media with subscription dollars. Monica, my wife, subscribes to the local daily paper. I think the best we can hope for, basically, with media would be at least being thankful that there is the variety and and because of the web you have more to choose from in a sense you can choose your custom news menu but i i think chris starwalt would also urge you not to let that become your own bubble that you don't want to create something that is so closed to other perspectives that all you do is end up reinforcing your your assumptions. I love nothing more as a reader than being surprised by something. Finding someone who simply defies your expectations. I remember one time Terry Gross of National Public Radio interviewed a gay man who had moved back to somewhere in Missouri to look after his mother, who was terminally ill. I think Terry Gross was proceeding on the assumption that he would be surrounded by dullards and and by people who would not appreciate him for who he was. But on the contrary, he spoke about how so many people from his mother's church would visit and pray for her and with him and would treat him with dignity and love. I do want to quote one thing from Chris Steyerwald's book simply because he invokes C.S. Lewis, which was a pleasant surprise for me. And he writes this. This will give your audience some taste for his writing style as well. C.S. Lewis was a stout champion of clear language, including in journalism. His 1943 book, The Abolition of Man, is a zealous denunciation of gushy, quavery language, then growing in popularity among programmatic technocrats of the West. The slim volume is a thrilling harangue against the numbskull educators who are always looking for a way to define literacy and thereby language in pseudoscientific terms. Literacy isn't a phonetic understanding of words, the ability to read and write. It is your portion of the rich, dense cultural knowledge defined by our common language. Lewis was attacking what was, and very much still is, a systematic way to water down our words for the sake of a polite, bloodless way of talking that demands ample ambiguity. And as I was reading that, it occurred to me that one other publication I failed to mention on Substack will offer readers or audience members regular access to Chris Steyerwalt's writing if they're interested. It's called The Dispatch. It was co-founded by Jonah Goldberg and um, the former editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard. I know it employs David French, who can be kind of a mixed bag in his writing, but also Jonah is writing regularly there, and they've got a pretty vigorous staff, and they seem to be growing by leaps and bounds, which is a good thing. And for anyone who wants a dose of Chris uh, Steyerwald through television, he works now for News Nation, which um, is 
based in the suburbs of Chicago. I think it used to be the Chicago Tribune's platform for covering local Chicago news, but it's now national, and it's striving to be more of a, an old-fashioned news platform where you really do strive for balance. I'd just like to throw in one more thing before we wrap up, and I really appreciate your time, Doug. I would say my suggestion, beyond maybe what Chris Steyerwalt said, is not only have a variety of press outlets that you turn to for news so you can compare you know, accounts, but maybe try for a variety of friends. I think sometimes we, are, uh, we get into our own silos. I'm living in Naperville, Illinois, a, a, you know, a pretty thriving suburb of Chicago, and there's not that many anymore. <laughs> but uh, I've discovered that a lot of my neighbors are quite left of center. You know, this is probably an influence of Chicago, which is one of the most, I would say, liberal cities in, in America, but I'm not sure it's liberal anymore, but it is left. But you need to get to know such people. You need to hear their perspective. You need to uh, offer your perspective, and hopefully you'll grow as a result. I know one of the things that I learned at Christianity Today was the value of being able to state someone's position that's different from yours in a way that they would say, yeah, that's what I think, rather than some kind of a caricature of their position. We can only do that by rubbing shoulders and spending time with each other. Amen to all that. That's the standard I tried to hold myself to throughout my career, especially when I worked for an advocacy organization within the Episcopal Church called Episcopalians United. It helped me to remember to not speculate about people's motives, but simply to describe their actions in Mm. ways that they would recognize themselves. Maybe you're the person who told me that. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) I would be happy if that's the case. Yeah. Thanks so much, Doug. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on The Loop with Stan Guthrie.